Welcome to the Road to Kyoto podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Ian Tennant. The Road to Kyoto is a series of discussions with some of the leading experts who study and track organised crime and related policy challenges. We're speaking ahead of the UN Crime Congress, which takes place every five years. The Congress is an opportunity for the international community to come together to make progress on countering organised crime and the damage it does around the world. This year's Congress was scheduled to take place in April in Kyoto, Japan, but has been postponed due to the coronavirus. It's not yet clear when the Congress will take place. This week I was joined by two guests from the International Drug Policy Consortium, Gloria Lai, Regional Director for Asia, and Jamie Bridge, Chief Operating Officer. I began by asking what the IDPC are expecting from the Crime Congress. Our membership is broad itself, and we have many members who, whose primary focus is actually on criminal justice and crime issues, who also do work on drugs. So I think the key thing for us is that these two worlds overlap hugely. And, you, you know, it's so difficult. You can't have a conversation on drug policy without talking about criminal justice and, and vice versa. So it's kind of natural for us to, to have that focus on the Crime Congress and to be interested in that. And I think we attended the, the Doha Crime Congress, and that was, I think, the first one that we engaged with as a network. But really, like our mantra here, our mandate is to, to work with our, our membership and to help link NGOs at the national level, the regional level and the international level, link them with the key UN discussions and the key UN processes. So for us, that's why we're interested in the Crime Congress and why we, we're really trying to promote more drug-related conversations in that forum. Okay, and you, uh, and you said the IDPC attended uh, the last Crime Congress in Doha in 2015. Uh, what, what were your impressions of that meeting and you know, what would you like to move forward at this meeting? I went to Doha for that Crime Congress specifically for a side event on women in prison. So in our work on drug policy, we ask questions about how is it working? How is it working well or not well? And one of the major areas where it's not working well is how it leads to many people being criminalised and ending up in places of incarceration or detention to the extent that in Thailand, where I'm based, over 70% of the prison population are there because of they're being convicted of a drug offence. And for women, the proportion is even higher, over 80%. So I think we would like to engage more with particularly stakeholders who look at the impact of drug policies on the criminal justice system. Obviously, drug policies then contribute to a significant burden and overburdening, actually, not just on prisons, but on prosecutors, on the judicial system, because judges are then often overloaded with cases because of the way that drug-related activities are penalised and sentenced. So I think at this stage, we're wanting to build, I guess, is really raising awareness about the connection between drug policies and criminal justice systems, which would hopefully then raise more questions about well, if we are to address these problems in the concerns in the criminal justice system, we have to look at how we might need to change the way our drug policies are. I mean, when you were engaging on these issues previously, did you feel like there was a big constituency of interest in talking about these issues in a, in a kind of crime-focused context, or did you feel that it was kind of a, a sideline issue? Well, at that time, it definitely yeah, was a sideline issue. But interestingly, that was for me... A few years after working at IDPC, the first time I met someone from PRI, Penal Reform International, and it so happened that they were presenting, I think, their first 
report on global prison trends and they had a special focus on drugs and they were looking for someone at the crime congress on their side event to talk about drugs so that's actually how I first met them and but this is interesting from their side because Penal Reform International obviously covers focus on the criminal justice system without necessarily a thematic focus such as drugs but it was their focus on that and seeing how many people were in prison for drugs particularly women, that led to them wanting to work with organisations focusing on drug issues. But yes, overall, it was and I think still is um, a sideline issue. And I think with, I mean, again, from the Doha Crime Congress, you know, we now, Penal Reform International, are now one of the members of IDPC. So it, it, for us, it's, again, this is an opportunity to, to, to get our own membership, to engage more in the crime issue, but also to reach out to criminal justice-focused NGOs who either do work, as you said, they already do work on drugs or, or are interested in that topic, and just bridging, the, bridging those gaps and making those alliances. I think it's a really good opportunity. And the fact that it is a sidelined issue makes it even more of an opportunity for us to go and, and try and promote it more and try and promote even more discourse on it. I'd like to ask you a bit more of a kind of policy question. <clears throat> Since the last Doha Congress in 2015, two major agreements have been made in the UN system that are related to this Agenda 2030 and the UN General Assembly Special Session on Drugs, the Ungas 2016 Declaration. You would recognise, I think, in the negotiations for Kyoto that human rights and issues related to human rights, such as the use of the death penalty, are one of the major political disagreements. I mean, is there anything that you learnt from the UNGAS process that you think could be applied to Kyoto? And what, or what would you like member states to take from the UNGAS process or the UNGAS declaration into Kyoto? I mean, I think the important thing that the UNGAS outcome document did for us and not by accident, you know, this was after a lot of advocacy and a lot of hard work by a whole range of NGOs. But I think the thing that Beyond Gas gave us was a much broader perspective on drug policy. So just as one example, the previous agreements that had been made on drugs at the international level focused on three pillars demand reduction, supply reduction, and international cooperation. Whereas Beyond Gas, for the first time, gave us a, a much broader structure. And there is now seven pillars, including a specific one on human rights, a specific one on access to medicines, a specific one on development. And that was obviously something that we very much welcomed. And I think it goes to show that, you know, these traditional ways of looking at these issues can be challenged and can be restructured and can be reconsidered. You know, it's not an easy process, but the young gas shows us that it can be done. And so much has happened since the young gas. The young gas has been a real catalyst as you said, it was 2016. So it's been a real catalyst for so much that's happened at the national level and the international level. And I think, you know, one example of that for me is, is the issue of decriminalising drug users or decriminalising people who use drugs or, or the personal possession of drugs. And this is something that now the narrative here in Vienna at the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, the narrative on this, there's been so much progress in recent years, it's really escalated in a positive way. And just yesterday, we had this amazing side event here hosted by the Norwegian government, where they presented this new model that they are putting through a public hearing and a political process to try and decriminalise the possession of drugs. And, you know, I think 10 years ago, you'd have said that was never going to be possible here in Vienna. And I guess the lesson learned and the lesson for Kyoto is that it absolutely is. And I think we need to build on that momentum, take it to Kyoto, take it to the Crime Congress and just try and make sure that these commitments exist. Because with the decriminalisation of drug possession and drug use, 
That's obviously trying to shift it more towards a health-focused approach than a criminal justice approach. But you can't do that without the buy-in and the support and the understanding of the criminal justice sector. You're fighting a losing battle if you don't have them on board. So that, for me, is something that we'll be looking to take to, uh, to the Crime Congress to, to try and not even kickstart, but try and, try and build the momentum further in this, in this direction. On a related policy issue, I think one of the other points made of progress in the UNGAS um, document, which is very relevant to the, to the Crime Congress and to the CCPCJ, but has never really been discussed in the same way, is the proportionality of sentencing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if there's anything you, know, anything you would like to take forward on that or any comments you have on how, how much impact the progress that's been made on proportionality in UNGAS has had on the ground. That was seen as a, a really important victory, I guess, when the Young Gas Outcome document was was negotiated, but proportionality was explicitly mentioned in there. I think it was for the first time in a document of that kind. Alongside other really important parts, like, the, you know, some of the human rights obligations around criminal justice and, you know, the right to fair trial and the right, you know, legal aid. And, you know, all of that was very strongly emphasised in the Young Gas document. And we've never seen that before. I mean, the challenge is... And I think this is the challenge we've had in terms of trying to now turn that into actual implementation on the ground. You know, the million-dollar question is, well, what is proportionate? And you now hear that word, proportionality and proportionate. You hear that now used a lot more here in Vienna in government statements and things like this. But it's quite clear that it means slightly different things to different people. There are some governments who will still stand up in this forum here in Vienna and say that the death penalty is a proportionate response. You know, so I think the challenge now is actually articulating what is that proportionality? You know, what does that mean in practice? What is a proportionate response? And by definition, what responses, criminal justice responses are disproportionate? And I think that still needs more work, certainly here at the Commission on Narcotic Drugs. I think that's something they still need to, to focus on more. But absolutely, the young gas was a huge step in the right direction. And it would be wonderful to see that repeated and taken to the Crime Congress as well, that concept of proportionality. We've, we've spoken a little bit about why it's important for the crime and the drugs traditionally focused NGOs to mm-hmm. reach out and work um, with each other. Now, one of the bits of news from Vienna and the NGO um, landscape here is that we have a, a newly registered alliance of NGOs um, on crime prevention and, uh, and criminal justice, which hopes to follow in the successful footsteps of the Vienna NGO Committee on Drugs. Um, do you have any words of advice for the newly created alliance and how it should take things forward? So speaking now, I guess, as the chair of Vienna NGO Committee, and you know, I think it's so important to have those coordinating structures that can then have that link with the United Nations here. Again, coming back to the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, I think we're in a position where over the last decade, the space that's now open for civil society has never been greater. But with that, you know, so that means that there's more NGOs attending. I think we've got like hundreds of NGOs here this week. In the set piece meetings, the space is great. Yeah, yeah, no, this, yeah, exactly. And, and, but also all through the year. So now whenever there's an expert meeting called or an intercessional meeting called, it's no longer a situation where NGOs have to fight for a space. It's now actually that it's assumed that we have a space. That, for me, goes to show the power of this NGO, the need for the NGO Alliance and and other NGO committees to come together. And the thing that's been really great, it's really important that these NGO committees also talk to each other. 
Yeah, it, within all these sectors, we're very guilty. We're all guilty of talking within a bubble a lot of the time. And it, what's been really great is working with the NGO Alliance. We're even potentially talking about joint side events and joint events and things like this. So I think, you know, we as the NGO committees have a responsibility to, to bridge these silos sometimes and bring people together. You, you spoke about the, the space for NGOs, at, you know, in the institutions here at the UN. But where you're working in Asia, how do you see the, the space for civil society working on the ground? on drugs and crime issues? Actually, it's worse in recent years. Drugs, to start off with, is it's a sensitive and but highly stigmatised issue in everywhere around the world, but also due to the, the extent to which drug policies are as punitive as they are, particularly in Southeast Asia, where you can see with the use of the death penalty for drug offences, one of the few, probably the only region in the world that has the highest number of countries that still implement the death penalty for drug offences and the extent to which law enforcement have such a broad authority to make people undergo a urine test, for example, or stop them on the street for arbitrary arrests and detention. There's a lot of not just stigma, but real fear around challenging authority on drug-related laws or drug policies. And then on top of that, you already have political contexts that have become more authoritarian in recent years. For example, with the passing of NGO laws that model Russia and China. So you see that in Cambodia, for example. So, I mean, the space for all NGOs working on human rights-related issues was already limited. And then on working on drugs is almost like another layer of another challenge. Do you see a... A vibrant civil society sector nonetheless? Yeah, you do see in in some countries, even in the Philippines, for example, they have always had, I guess, even compared with other countries in the region, an active civil society movement, certainly in relation to human rights, but not, not in relation to drugs. You have a very incredibly small number working on drug-related issues. And there are particularly around, like lawyers, for example, um, like lawyers probably in definitely in the Philippines, but also in Malaysia, were more likely to engage in issues relevant to the Crime Congress. And they are important allies with NGOs on this. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you've highlighted one of the reasons, you know, why having civil society voices is so so important so that member states understand what's really happening uh, on the ground. I think we've got a real responsibility as well as, as an international network, as IDPC is, to support and strengthen and kind of empower those those NGOs, even in those most repressive, awful places where I can't even imagine how difficult it must be to do this work and to be advocating in this way. We've got to make sure that they are supported, but also protected as much as possible. And I think this is where there's, there's a, an increasing focus on funding and mechanisms that can protect human rights defenders and can react when there is a situation where an NGO is under attack from their government or is feeling unsafe in their setting. These NGOs do exist and we've got to give a huge amount of credit for the incredible work they do, incredibly difficult circumstances. And it's, it's our responsibility as international NGOs to just try and help them in any way we can and protect them. Yeah, well, hopefully the, the member states in the, in the declaration will recognise that these situations in the, in the declaration that's being negotiated as we speak. Yeah, so both NGOs, but particularly those who are affected by those policies. So I guess us and other organisations strongly believe that people who are affected by 
those policies should be heard in terms of how those policies should be changed. In our spaces, often people who use drugs, but also formerly incarcerated people. And I mean, again, coming back, coming back to the UNGAS in 2016, which you mentioned, the support in that document, the explicit support in that document for the role that civil society plays. And since then, on the back of that, we've also had resolutions here at the Commission on Narcotic Drugs specifically about reducing stigma and involving people who use drugs, for example, or people affected by the policies. I think having that kind of message reflected in the Crime Congress would be a massive positive development, just to acknowledge the, both the role that NGOs play, but also a real appreciation of the difficult context in which they do that role. Well, I think that's a very worthy objective for our colleagues in the member state delegations to think about. Okay, well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us in today's Road to Kyoto podcast. Good luck with your events and your advocacy that you'll be undertaking at the Congress whenever it should take place. And see you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Take a moment to leave us a review. They help us get noticed and improve the show. For more on organised crime, head over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net. You can also follow us across social media by searching for The Global Initiative. This show was produced by Jack Megan Vickers with help from Paulina Russell-Barris. I'm Ian Tennant. Thanks for listening.